How about now? How about now? There we go. That was my user error, not sound. We appreciate those who service in that area. It's such a thankless job when everything's going right. Nobody says thank you and something goes wrong. Every head turns on you. In this case, it's my fault. So That's a great segue. I was going to comment about how we don't usually like uncomfortable situations. You know, despite what you may think, I do not like everyone's eyes on me very often. You're probably thinking I chose the wrong profession. Um, But there's a reality that uncomfortable situations are not all that bad. Even though most of us don't like uncomfortable situations, there might be a few and they have sociopathic tendencies. Our aversion to what is uncomfortable really goes far beyond social interaction or having all eyes on us. We go to great lengths to be comfortable. Our society, the Western culture especially, have become masters of this. I mean, just look at how many mattress options there are. But the truth is that the greatest growth in our lives most often happens when we are uncomfortable. Someone was reminding me recently that we grow by pressure and being made uncomfortable. You don't go to the gym, for example, to be comfortable. Maybe you like it there, but it's not comfortable. It's uncomfortable. You're trying to make your muscles uncomfortable. Training for a marathon. Again, you may enjoy running, but it's still not comfortable. Your feet hurt. You're winded. You're exhausted. It's uncomfortable. We learn by pushing ourselves, by making ourselves uncomfortable. We learn new ideas, new concepts, new habits by being made uncomfortable with where we are. This morning, we come to a text that I hope makes us uncomfortable. Hopefully more than just a bit uncomfortable, it makes us a lot uncomfortable. Because I believe we need to be made uncomfortable in order to grow in our love for God and our love for others. Being uncomfortable is what helps us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Work out, not for, but work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And this morning we come to the last of Jesus' parables before the cross. And it's a parable that's unlike any other parable he has given so far. It does not contain the words like or as that you might be used to. Instead, Jesus starts by declaring when. It's a statement of fact. It's something that is going to happen. And Jesus gives a statement of fact, when the Son of Man comes. In fact, the only parable-like elements in this final sermon Jesus gives before the cross are those that provide an illustration of the righteous as sheep and the wicked or the unrighteous as goats. And when Jesus comes... We learn, or we will learn, all will be stripped away. There will be nowhere to hide. It will be uncomfortable. And so the question this morning is, are you ready for that day? If you haven't already turned there, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 as we look at and prepare for the return of Christ. We're in Matthew 25, down in verse 31. But 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire for which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Pray with me if you would. Father, as we come to this final teaching of Christ before the cross, Father, I pray that you would direct our hearts and minds to this concept of being prepared for your return, of being prepared for our Savior's return. When he will come to judge, to separate, to distinguish between those that love him And those who do not, who have never submitted to him. Father, help it to create within us a desire to proclaim your gospel, to proclaim the good news, the hope of salvation that exists for all who will call upon your name, who will trust in the name of Jesus Christ. Help us this morning to be motivated to love you more. In your name, amen. And Jesus opens this teaching by describing the future return of the Son of Man. Now, we know from our previous study that this reference to the Son of Man is a title for Jesus. It's one he's used of himself. In fact, he uses it frequently to speak of himself, going all the way back to chapter 8, verse 20. But we've also learned that it was significant not just because Jesus used it during his ministry, In fact, Jesus begins using it in his ministry because of how important, how significant it is in the Old Testament. It's charged with meaning. You might say pregnant with meaning and significance. 
Perhaps the passage that first jumps to your mind, one of the most obvious is Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14, where there Daniel describes the coming of the Son of Man in language that is very similar to what we have here in Matthew 25. The Son of Man descends and he appears before the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father. And Daniel tells us that the glory Jesus describes here in Matthew is given to him by that Ancient of Days. And yet it's not only glory that's given, but also a kingdom and a dominion. This is a dramatic scene. We get dropped into this in Jesus' teaching, and he doesn't spend a lot of time unfolding it. That's because he expects us, expects his hearers, those who are listening, the disciples, to know and have an awareness of how important, how significant this teaching is in the Old Testament. It's why it's important that we study all of Scripture. Because there are terms like this, there are phrases like this that draw our attention, that the more we have studied the Old Testament, the more we have studied our Bibles, the more alive it becomes to us. And if you've read through the Old Testament, passages like Daniel 7 and others, this is a dramatic scene that's taking place. It is the end of this age, the beginning of the age to come. It's when Christ returns, not as a servant, but as a sovereign. And his rulership is immediate. All of the nations gather, or we might say in light of the illustration that is given, flock to him. They immediately recognize his authority, his dominion, so they appear before him to pay homage and give an account. Just like the servants we saw a couple of weeks ago who came before their master who had been gone for a very long period of time to account for their stewardship. How did they live in this life that they were given? What did they do? Were they faithful with it? If we know our Bibles, again, this is no surprise. Jesus himself has taught this many times, that there will be an account given. One of the most obvious is the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. But it stretches back into the early pages of the Old Testament. For example, we read in Jeremiah chapter 17, following that well-known verse in 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? A lot of times we end there. Jeremiah actually answered it for us because we have verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. Even to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. I will repay, says the Lord. And in this parable, Jesus provides a summary of the accounting that is going to take place on that day when he returns and sits on his earthly throne. And at that time, he's going to gather all of the people together, all of the nations. And this separating is actually not going to be very complicated. There's not going to be hundreds, thousands of different groups. There won't even be dozens. There won't even be ten. There will be two groups. That's it. For all of the differences, all the uniquenesses of all persons throughout all of history... When it boils down to it, there are just two groups. It's what we saw in the parable of the bridesmaids. You're either in or you're out. Jesus uses a couple of terms to describe each of these groups here. First, he uses a figurative term as he personifies these two groups. These two groups of persons, calling 
one group, sheep, and the other, goats. As all the nations flock to this true shepherd. The group personified as sheep are additionally called righteous. And that's another weighty word. It's another word that's filled with meaning. While we won't unpack it in detail, we, we summarize it, and it's helpful to summarize it and remind ourselves of it, is that it means, at a simple explanation, to be right with God. Righteousness means to be without sin. And if we can't be without sin, then it must mean something else, and we'll unpack that in a little bit. But it means to be right with God. It means to not have my sins counted against me any longer. At its most basic meaning, that's it. But that's everything. Because to be righteous is to have God's favor. To not have my sins counted against me. To not have my sins remembered. To not have them fall anywhere on the ledger is everything. It means to not be under God's wrath. And at the end of the day, that is all that will matter. And that's why, again, there are only two groups. When everything else is stripped away, all the superfluous things, all the things of this world, when everything is stripped away, that's all that matters for all of eternity. Are you able to stand righteous before God? Will you be declared righteous before God? The separation of the sheep and the goats... I feel a little bad for goats. There's nothing inherently evil about a goat. But it provides us with the metaphor of a shepherd. And that's important. Shepherd imagery is very significant. It's very meaningful throughout Scripture. It's appropriate that Jesus would refer to his second coming, his return, with both the language of a king and thrones, as well as a shepherd with sheep. In Ezekiel, we read, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and will be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David will be my prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And that's what Jesus wants us to be reminded of here. The great shepherd who is king as he sets up his division of sheep from goats. There's a great train of theology around that concept of God and his servant Jesus, a shepherd, stretching back to the earliest chapters of the Bible. One of the most well-known psalms, Psalms 23, begins, The Lord is my shepherd. It's not insignificant that the patriarchs themselves are shepherds. But they're not just shepherds hiding in the hills. Kings feared these early shepherds. Kings respected them. The Pharaoh of Egypt respected them. Abraham was feared by kings. He defeated kings in battle though he was a shepherd. And Israel's greatest king, King David, was a shepherd. All of this anticipates and begins to put into our, our minds and prepare us for the great shepherd. In fact, God promises David in 2 Samuel that it will be from his line that the promised ruler and shepherd will come who will bring to fruition all the promises of God. And the shepherd imagery with the shepherd imagery in mind, Jesus moves to the separation. Now, a shepherd 
may keep sheep and goats together in the field for a time, but will often separate them for a variety of reasons at different times. I'm not claiming to be an expert in sheep and goats. There's a few here who know quite a bit more than I do about animal husbandry. But there are times that a shepherd will separate the sheep and the goats, whether it's for well-being, whether it's because of cold nights. And so it's quite frequent that you'll find that separation take place. Now, the reason for the separation, at least from the perspective of animal husbandry, doesn't matter. That's unimportant. What is important is that a separation takes place. And once separated, we learn that there are very different destinations and outcomes for these two groups. That's where our focus goes. The right hand was considered the place of favor. It was often associated with delegated authority and rulership. And we see that that is the place of the righteous. The unrighteous or the goats, well, they go to the left. And it's not the side you want to be on. Notice what happens next in verses 34 through 36. We see that the righteous from the nations are rewarded and they enter in. It's the same language we have seen in the past two parables to describe participation in that great feast and that celebration. Ultimately, it means to be in the presence of the king, of the bridegroom, of the shepherd. So many different and beautiful word pictures are given to help us anticipate and long for that day, for that opportunity to be in the presence of the king. No, too, this is no afterthought. This kingdom was planned from the foundation of the world. This is not God's plan B. Nothing is outside the sovereign control of God. As crazy as this world looks, and the deeper you look, the crazier it seems, God is in control. There is not one atom that is outside of his control. One more observation from verse 34. Notice that while Jesus is the son of man, in verse 31, he is also the son of God. Jesus declares his divinity and sonship in verse 34 when he says, my father. Jesus is making that claim unmistakably clear. He is God. As such, we have a choice, a choice that begins to identify where we fall amongst these two groups, the sheep and the goats. C.S. Lewis summarized it nicely when he noted, based on Jesus' claims of who he is, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. So the sheep enter in. But why? What is it that makes them righteous? Or perhaps we might say, how do we know they are righteous? That's really the better question. And Jesus tells us. He tells us how we know that they are righteous. Later we'll talk about what makes them righteous, but now we just want to understand, how do we know they are righteous? Is there anything observable about them? Because I don't know about you, but if you've been in church a long time, you realize that Christians are not perfect people. I know that probably comes as a surprise to many of you. We are not perfect people. I am a sinner. If you doubt that, pull my children aside. But Jesus tells us how we know they are righteous. Six characteristics are listed here. 
And Jesus says that the sheep as a whole have demonstrated these characteristics toward him. That in of itself is unique, and we'll come back to that. These characteristics are not exhaustive, nor are they new, but they are indicative, that is, they identify what it is that makes someone righteous. And again, if you're familiar with your Bible, with your Old and your New Testament, you, you're familiar with a lot of these things. It reminds us of several lists that God has given throughout his word of how the faithful follower of God behaves toward others and how they treat others. For example, in Isaiah 58, you read, Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into the house, when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Ezekiel 18, If a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. If he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity, if he executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Speaking of the unrighteous, Job By the way, Job is likely one of the earliest books written. doesn't speak of the earliest times. Genesis does that. But Job is likely one of the earliest of the Old Testament books that was written. We read in Job chapter 22, speaking of the unrighteous, For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause. You have stripped men naked. To the wary you have given no water to drink. From the hungry you have withheld bread. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. These are just a sampling, by the way. Each of these lists demonstrate works of compassion and mercy towards hurting people, ideas that are iterated throughout the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Romans 12, 9, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And a few verses later, contribute to the needs of the saints, practice hospitality. Hospitality is a word that really binds up most of these characteristics. It's love others, it's welcome them in, it's care for them, it's come alongside them. In fact, that's the standard of an elder. We see that in 1 Timothy 3.2, a leader of the church, an elder, is to be hospitable. It's repeated in Titus 1.8, hospitable, loving what is good. In Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Hebrews 13.2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And I'll close with this one, 1 Peter 4.9, it's short and brief, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Maybe the hardest one. All of these New Testament exhortations and commendations summarize Jesus' words when answering the lawyer in Matthew 22. Just a couple chapters before where we find ourselves. When that lawyer came up to him and asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered him, and you know the answer. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
But Jesus didn't stop there, did he? Even though he didn't ask it, he said, let me tell you the second greatest commandment. And if Jesus is introducing it to a question that is unasked, it must be extremely important for us. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we've observed over the past couple of chapters why this is so important and why this this closing teaching of Jesus before the cross continues to find ways of reiterating the second greatest commandment. And it's because this second greatest commandment is the litmus test. It identifies if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And here in our text this morning, we find exactly that. A test has been given. And now... The test results are being read out loud. And those who have practiced hospitality, that is, loving their neighbor as themselves, are rewarded. You might be tempted at this point to think something or say something like, wait a second. I'm pretty sure I've read somewhere that salvation is by grace, not by works. That's a good point. Because at first glance, it sure does look like the sheep are being rewarded based on their works. That is, until you look at their response. Notice verses 37 and 38. You know something a little odd? When the sheep are commended, when they're told that they've done this, how do they respond? They say, oh yeah, I did that. I did that to earn my salvation. They're surprised. Now, why are they surprised if they expected that their works would earn salvation? They wouldn't have been. If salvation is earned through good works and hospitality, then the surprise is very odd and out of place. If it's by works, then they're expecting this combination, this recognition. Instead, they're shocked. And so clearly, their kindness to the needy was not in order to gain a reward and merit salvation. Rather, it was a part of just the way they lived, the way they lived in response to we might add, to what Christ has done in and for them. True disciples will love one another and serve the least brother with compassion. And in so doing, they serve Christ. These are righteous, not because of what they have done, but because what they have done demonstrates their true character. Going back to Matthew 5, they have recognized their spiritual poverty. They have put their faith and trust in God and his son. But to add a little bit to their confusion, Jesus says they've actually done this to him and for him. The problem is, and what creates additional confusion, is he's been gone a very long time. This says when he returns. So how did they do this to him while he was gone? Verse 40, in answer to how they have shown this hospitality to him, Jesus says, it was by proxy. Every time you practice loving your brother, you did it to me. Now, we have a question to answer here, don't we? It's, who are these brothers? Who are these brothers of mine that Jesus calls? Who are these Persons that Jesus views so highly that he associates himself with them. That he identifies with them. There have been quite a few suggestions. 
quite a bit more in recent years. Historically, this has been understood as other Christians. But over the past 200 years or so, it's been more common to hear preachers or commentators say it applies to any person in need, showing compassion to any who need it. So which is it? Well, I think the brothers and the least of these primarily refers to Christians here. I want to provide an important caveat. Just because I believe that here it is specifically a reference to believers does not mean that we should limit our kindness, our compassion, our hospitality so that we neglect loving those who are poor and hurting around us. Scripture provides plenty of exhortation for this very thing. But here, I believe the specific and near reference is other believers or Christians. Now, why do I say this? Why do I believe that the brothers and the least of them in this passage are other Christians? There's more than this, but I'll give you two reasons this morning. First, the word brothers is used almost exclusively throughout the New Testament for faithful disciples, men and women, those who came to be called Christians in Acts 11.26. Have you ever wondered where the word Christian came from? We didn't name ourselves. We were named by others. They begin to call us Christians in Acts 11.26, little Christs. In fact, the two closest references to our text that uses the term brothers is in Matthew 23.8, where Jesus said to his disciples, you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Matthew 28.10, Jesus will tell the woman at the tomb, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. In fact, throughout the Gospels, the phrase, my brothers, is only used by Jesus for his followers. Jesus, or Paul, excuse me, also uses the same phrase, and when he does, he only uses it with reference to the church. Secondly, apart from just the common reference, in the Olivet Discourse, that's where we were, we've been taking a little while, so just in case you forgot where we're at, we're in the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is talking primarily, though not exclusively, to the church or to the disciples. Remember in Matthew 24, 3, it is the disciples who came to him privately and began asking questions. That's who he's talking to here. Equally of importance in this context is that Jesus said to them what was going to happen to them after he went away. He said, faithful disciples, according to chapter 24, verse 14, are first going to go testify about the gospel of the kingdom, they're going to go into the nations, and then they're going to be persecuted by the nations. We read in verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation, they will put you to death, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And if you know the history of the church from Acts on, that's precisely what happened in two current times. The gospel went out, Jesus' disciples, not just the twelve, but all who called themselves followers of Jesus Christ... And they began suffering persecution, imprisonment, poverty, homelessness, sickness, thirst, hunger, inadequate clothing. And if you think it doesn't go on today, you've got your head in the sand. Now, it may not be felt as strongly in our culture, and that's by God's mercy and grace. But it is every week I read about what's happening, especially in Africa. They gather to worship, and the doors burst open, and they begin slaughtering. They begin dragging them into slavery. Children are killed before parents. Mothers before their children. Fathers before their families. 
they become homeless. They're thirsty. They're hungry. They're impoverished. And so we can see how my brothers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, fits both theologically into the context of Scripture and it fits historically and logically with the rest of Scripture. Please also keep in mind that these works are not exhaustive, but they're illustrative. They demonstrate the types of works, the types of deeds that a Christian is busy about. But notice, too, these are things that are not relegated to a special type of Christian. These are not things that you have to go through years of theological training to do. It does not take multiple master's degrees and a PhD to have someone in your home or to feed the hungry or to visit someone in prison. John puts it succinctly in 1 John chapter 3 and 4. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Then chapter 4, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John's just explaining what we've been talking about. He goes on to say, this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God loves his brother also. Love of your brothers and sisters in Christ demonstrating it in these ways is a mark that you love God. It is the clearest indication in this life that you love God. It's not how much time you spend studying and reading your Bible. Please study and read your Bible. But it is not how much you are studying and reading your Bible. It's how well are you doing at loving your brother and your sister. As we turn the pages on the sheep, what comes next for the goats is horrible and terrifying. In the third repetition of this list, Jesus now condemns all of those on his left, all those who are personified here as goats, the unbelievers, the unrighteous who have flocked from the nations. And they are condemned for not acting with kindness and love toward the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. In light of what we observed about, especially the persecution that's going on in so many parts of the world, have you ever, have you ever thought that being a Christian is hard? It's you're looked down upon? Have you ever considered the suffering of other believers across the world, again, to this day, who are imprisoned and persecuted and hurt? And have you ever wondered, how long, O Lord? How long until it's dealt with? How can you turn a blind eye? Well, the time will come. And we see that here in verses 41 through 43. And it's for this reason that Paul writes in Galatians 6, saying, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And notice that the sheep, like the goats, I'm sorry, the goats, like the sheep, respond with surprised confusion. They feel they could not possibly be guilty because they never neglected to show hospitality and kindness to this terrifying king and sovereign before whom they stand. However, Jesus once again makes it clear how you treat these brothers of mine will be counted as if you were behaving that way to me, to the king himself. 
More importantly, it is an indication of an inward disposition. The repetition of the list by the goats, they repeat it back to him. They, you notice they abbreviate it just a bit. Every, they mention every item, but they, they don't spend much time on it. And it's likely because of the terror of the pending condemnation. They're quick to plead their case. They rattle off the list quickly. There's an urgency to their words as they realize that judgment awaits and they need to make their final plea. I mean, you can imagine to some extent, though I don't think any of us can truly comprehend, the terror, feeling the fires of hell at your back, being told you are about to be cast there. You would want to do everything you could to plead your case and avoid that horrible punishment for all of eternity. But it's too late. No amount of pleading, no attempts at ignorance will avail. This life is the only opportunity you have to repent. You know, there are many, even in the church, who would agree with the goats here. There are many who have a high view of the goodness of man and a pretty low view of the holiness of God. Many who read this passage in our day and age, they cannot help but ask, is the neglect of loving others so wicked that it demands hell? And yet to even ask the question shows the sinfulness of sin, shows that it's not nearly as sinful to us. We don't really see the ugliness of sin. Jesus' answer to their incredulity seals their fate. You know, there are many as well, even among Christians, who strongly oppose the doctrine of eternal punishment. And let's be honest, none of us like the idea either. I can understand why you're opposed to the doctrine of eternal punishment. It is a horrible, horrific thought. None of us like to think that some of our neighbors, our friends, or our family will suffer eternally in hell. That's a horrible thing. And yet, to eliminate or remove the teaching of hell is to hide the gospel. The gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is that there is salvation from eternal judgment. And eternal torment for sin. And we must proclaim the full gospel. And really that word full is just redundant. It's to proclaim the gospel. Anything else is not the gospel. As we read these last verses, my mind returns to the term righteous. To be right with God. This is our only hope of escaping the horrendous torment of hell in the life to come. But how does one arrive at this standing before God? If we're taught that if we sin in just one area, we're guilty of breaking the entire law, then how can any of us be righteous before God? In fact, doesn't the Bible even say that there is none righteous, no, not one? Doesn't it also say that no amount of effort that I do can make myself right with God? It does. But if this is the case, how does one become righteous? The Holy Spirit answers this question through Paul in Romans 4. In Romans 4, beginning in verse 5, we read, but... And that is an important but. There are a lot of important buts in Scripture. Just when all hope is lost, 
But to the one who does not work, but by contrast, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits, that is, accounts, righteousness, apart from works. In other words, at the end of the day, there is going to be a, somehow, and we'll we get to it in just a moment, somehow God is going to not look at all of our works of sin, all of our efforts, and all of those things, and is instead going to credit righteousness. We're going to come to him with an empty bank account, and he's going to fill it. David goes on to say, blessed are those, or Paul quotes David going on to say in Romans 4, 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And what Paul does and has been doing in Romans is making it abundantly clear what this means. There is only one name under heaven given among men whereby you can be saved, whereby your sins can be forgiven, and that is Jesus Christ. The same sovereign who is standing before the sheep and goats came as a servant, as a suffering servant, to give his life as a ransom for the many, that we might be forgiven. This righteousness is given by God. Forgiveness comes through faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And, and it's not simply believing that God existed. The demons believe God exists. That's not enough. To believe God exists is not saving faith or saving belief. Saving belief is belief that you are a sinner in need of God's mercy. And that this mercy will only be found through the blood of Jesus. And so you cry out, thanking God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the payment for your sin. And you ask for forgiveness. There's no work you must do, no great feat you must accomplish. You must simply cry out for forgiveness. If you are here this morning, and I imagine there is more than one person of whom this is true. But you are here wanting to be counted among the sheep. You dread the fires of hell, and you know that if Christ were to return today as Lord and Sovereign, you would be found among the goats. Then please do not leave this morning without doing that very thing, crying out to God for mercy and forgiveness because of the death of his perfect son. And what of you, O Christian, who claims to be a follower of Christ? Luther noted in the preface to his commentary on Romans, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it to not be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works even need to be done. But before the question is even asked, it's already done them. And is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. It's somewhat fascinating that this is where Jesus closes out his training and teaching of the disciples before the cross. This final word that Jesus leaves them with before the crucifixion really focuses on the second greatest commandment. Why? Why is it so important? Simply put, a desire and practice of these things is the indication of that inward disposition and inward love for God. And at the end of the day, this 
is of greatest importance. That's why the Apostle John in his old age could no longer walk. He was carried on a litter back and forth to church because he was too feeble to really even move. And those in the church would ask him, what is the greatest insight and instruction that you can leave with us? And it's reported by, throughout history that he, is report, that he said, little children love one another. That was it. The last of the apostles to walk on this earth with Christ, on his deathbed, the final words he could leave with the church, with brothers and sisters in Christ is this, little children love one another. But we're not quite done. Almost. Last month as a church body, we challenged each other to be intentional in practicing hospitality and loving one another. It's good to be reminded of that because we, we get comfortable. Specifically, we want to start by spending time with one or two persons or couples or families in the body that you do not know as well. And I want you to keep doing this. Don't stop. But we're going to add to this. This month, there's a a new bit of homework, a new challenge for you. I told you it was going to get harder, by the way, so this is fair warning. We want to practice showing hospitality outside of the church. I want you to identify a neighbor, a coworker, who you normally wouldn't spend time with, that you wouldn't have into your home, or that you haven't. And I want you to Spend time with them. If you can, have a meal with them. If you can, invite them into your home. I know that doesn't work for everybody, but we can still be hospitable. We can still spend time with others. Be intentional about this. Build that habit. Build these spiritual disciplines. Where the one thing may have been there for quite a while, start doing it. There are a variety of ways you can show hospitality, but in the end, it just means spending time together and meeting needs if you are aware of them. Again, don't stop showing hospitality. Don't stop showing love amongst the body. Try to have someone from the body into your home this month as well, but encourage each other to add to this hospitality by spending time with persons or families or neighbors or coworkers that you don't normally spend much time with. Let us be active in doing good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the exhortation that comes through this parable, the implications that we are faced with, that we are confronted with. Father, I do pray if there is anyone in this room this morning who is not counted among the sheep, that they would repent of their sins, that you would make them so uncomfortable in their sin and where they stand that they would, they would just feel a great weight and that they would cry out to you for mercy. Father, we thank you that there is none you turn away, that you are faithful and just to forgive sins and cleanse unrighteousness. Thank you that we experience this. Father, help us where we have failed in showing good to our brothers and sisters and to those that are hurting in this world. Help us to be diligent to do these things. Help us to be diligent in loving one another. Father, as we do that, would our love and our just longing to be in your presence grow. And as our love for you grows, would we appreciate, enjoy, and rejoice in that beautiful cycle where it causes us to love others more. 
And Father, may those two things grow and grow and grow until that day that we are either called home or we see you coming in glory. In your name, amen.